When you think of heaven or the renewed creation, what images come to mind? What do you think of? Do you think of angels and the splendor of God's throne room? Do you think of a beautiful place, Uh, maybe green grassy meadows, gently flowing streams, lovely trees, uh, warmth? Do you think of feelings, maybe happiness or peace or stillness, rest? It's actually quite hard to fully describe or get our heads around heaven and the future renewed creation. And I suppose that's why the Bible uses a number of different metaphors or ways of describing what it is we're looking forward to. Our passage this morning is an example of that, and we'll see that at one point it uses the idea of animals and children interacting in the renewed world as a way of communicating the peace and security. And even utter transformation and difference of the world to come. We're looking this morning at Isaiah chapters 10, 11, and 12, but particularly concentrating on chapter 11, verses 1 to 16, a passage, again, that is mainly about the coming of the Messiah and the nature of his future rule and kingdom. Last week, it was the first part of Isaiah 9 that we looked at together, and the promise contained there of the Christ child who would be born, whose kingdom would never end, and who would be described by the titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. The second half of chapter 9 then describes again the Lord's anger against Israel. If you were here last week, you might remember how I said that the Lord's people, Israel, had rebelled against Him. They're worshiping other gods. They're uh, rejecting His commands, and they are oppressing the poor and vulnerable living among them. Specifically, the second half of chapter 9, the Lord rebukes them for their pride, verses 8 to 12, for the wickedness of their leaders, verses 13 to 17, for their tribal jealousy and infighting, verses 18 to 21, and the social injustices that they're committing, verse 1 to 4 of chapter 10. And so the Lord's anger is burning against them. His hand is raised in opposition, verse 4. And he's going to use the Assyrian army as a tool in his hand to bring about his judgment on Israel. That's the message of chapter 10. The Assyrian army are being sent against a godless nation, a people who anger him, as we're told in verse 6. But Assyria itself is not immune from God's judgment. Even though they are a tool in his hand against Israel, and God allows them to attack Israel, still the Assyrians are not willingly obeying or cooperating with the Lord's purposes. Chapter 10 explains that their motivation is to destroy Israel, to put an end to God's people. They arrogantly seize the loot and plunder the treasures, thinking that it's by their own strength and wisdom that they've achieved victory. But they are ultimately just a tool, an axe, a saw, in the hand of God. Verse 15. They don't move the players around the world stage. 
I don't know if you've ever played uh, the game Risk or one of those strategy board games. Well, it's a bit like if you could imagine the plastic pieces on the board that represent the armies or, or the wooden chess pieces on the board. Imagine them opening their mouth and declaring that by their own strength they have defeated the opposition. No, of course not. They're just the pieces on the board. They're just the tools in the hand of God. Although God allows the Assyrian army to attack and destroy, He is ultimately in control, working out His purposes. A useful reminder and reassurance even to us today as we think about all that's going on in our world. And God still holds the Assyrians accountable. Because of their arrogance and violence and determination to destroy, God says his judgment will come also upon Assyria. Israel hasn't escaped judgment, and Assyria certainly won't. Like a fire burning through a forest, verses 16 to 19, so will the Lord, the Holy One, burn through the Assyrian army. Like a forester lopping off the boughs of a tree or chopping through thick tree trunks and clearing a forest, so will the Assyrian army fall before the mighty one. Verses 33 and 34. And that's exactly what happened. If you know the story of Hezekiah, King Hezekiah was one of the later kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. He was a good king. He trusted in the Lord. And we read in the book of 2 Kings chapter 18 how uh, after the Assyrian army invaded the, the northern kingdom of Israel and they carried off many of the people of the northern tribes uh, to Assyria, the Assyrian king Sennacherib then invaded Judah and threatened Jerusalem. And King Hezekiah, he cries out to the Lord in prayer on behalf of the people and the Lord sends a message to Hezekiah through the prophet Isaiah saying that Sennacherib will not enter the city of Jerusalem. It uses language like the Lord will put a hook in his nose and a bit in his mouth and lead him back to Assyria. Verse 35 of 2 Kings 19, we read what happened. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day, while he was worshipping in the temple of his god Nisroch, his sons Adramelech and Sharezer killed him with the sword. Assyria, Assyria and its king cut down, just like the destruction of the forest prophesied in chapter 10, verse 34. But as a result, a remnant of God's people survives. A remnant of God's people are left in Jerusalem and in the towns of Judah and scattered even from the northern Israel and all the places where the Assyrians had resettled them. And the Lord declares through Isaiah chapter 10, verses 20 and 21, that the remnant of his people will return to him, the mighty God. They'll return to him. It's often quite difficult to know with prophecies like this how and and at what level they're fulfilled. I think it helps to realize that Old Testament prophecy can be fulfilled at a number of different levels. 
So you could imagine that after the Assyrian army retreat from Jerusalem, that the people, you know, the remnant in the city, they gather together and they worship the mighty God who's rescued them. But many years later, after the eventual destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonian army and the exile to Babylon, many years later, a remnant eventually returns to Jerusalem. And under Ezra and Nehemiah, they, uh, the temple is rebuilt and the walls are restored. And on that occasion, the people gather to worship the Lord and so on. In various ways and in various occasions, a remnant returns to the Lord. But ultimately, the remnant of God's people that truly comes to rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, as chapter 10 foretells, that remnant will be those who are saved and redeemed by the coming Messiah. Which brings us then to chapter 11, and the chapter we're going to concentrate on particularly this morning. The NIV gives to chapter 11 the title, The Branch from Jesse. And the chapter is primarily about the coming of the Messiah, the branch, and the nature of his coming kingdom. Developing out of all that imagery in chapter 10 of forests being felled and trees being cut down and, and the Assyrian army and God's people being reduced to tree stumps, the imagery of chapter 11 is that of a branch or a shoot that springs up out of the stump of Jesse, out of the roots of Judah. Something new and greater that God brings about. We're going to look at this chapter, chapter 11, now in three sections. So let me read the first part to you. Chapter 11, verses 1 to 5, and my first heading for this chapter the nature of the Messiah. The nature of the Messiah. Verses 1 to 5. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decision for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. One of the things that I enjoy about living where I do is uh, being able to walk around Lindsay Moss. Lindsay Moss is an old peat bog, uh, a wetland area. And uh, every so often, the ranger service come along and they uh, cut down the rapidly growing birch trees to stop them taking over and taking all the moisture out of the ground. But even when they chop down the trees to the roots, unless they paint them with some sort of special chemicals, new saplings sprout out of the roots. You might think that the tree was dead, but no. Even out of a stump, a new branch can come up. And so despite the appearance of death and destruction in Israel, verse 1 tells us of a shoot that will come up from the stump of Jesse. A branch will come forth from the roots of the people of Judah. Jesse was the father of King David. But rather than say David in verse 1, Isaiah refers to Jesse because this coming branch 
is not just a descendant of David, it's, it's not just one of his future children, but rather a, a new David with, with equal or greatness to David or even greater than David, the son of Jesse. Verse 2, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord will rest in him. That was something unusual in Old Testament times. Only key leaders, prophets, kings had the Spirit remain on them in a permanent basis. This coming branch, the coming Messiah, will be fully anointed with the Spirit of the Lord. And then we're told more of what the Spirit is like or what His presence means. Verse 2, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding. Wise understanding the right thing to do, the the ability to get to the heart of the issue and judge what is right, the spirit of counsel and of might, ability to discern the right course of action and in the power to see it through, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, knowing God personally, fearing the Lord, walking in reverent obedience before Him, The Spirit will rest on the branch on the Messiah and give him these things. These things will characterize the Messiah because he is full of the Spirit. And jumping forward 700 years, we see how Jesus, when he came, was full of the Holy Spirit and was characterized by wisdom and understanding and good counsel and power. And how he fully knew the Father and walked before him in reverent obedience and delight. He delighted in the fear of the Lord. And jumping forward another 2,000 years, we, we think of how the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives as Christians, producing these things in us also, and making each of us more like Jesus. Verse 3, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. In other words, he won't be influenced by superficial appearance or by whoever happens to be shouting loudest. Rather, he will judge rightly with justice, even for those who have little human power or status in the world. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, verse 4. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Rod of his mouth, breath of his lips is a way of referring to the judgments and decrees of this king. You know, like like a judge summing up at the end of a court case, pronouncing a decision. So this king pronounces his judgment, but his words carry absolute authority. Verse 5, righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. You know, these things will surround him. They will characterize him. Righteousness, faithfulness, authority, a just judge, wise, understanding, powerful, one who knows God and delights in the fear of the Lord. That is the nature of the coming Messiah. Verses 6 to 9 in the second section tell us about the nature of his kingdom, the nature of the Messiah's kingdom, verses 6 to 9. And this now brings us back to what we thought about at the beginning and the sort of images and metaphors we use to describe heaven and the coming renewed creation. Look at what Isaiah says, verse 6. He tells us that in the Messiah's kingdom, the wolf will live with the lamb, 
the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child would put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In this world, of course, the wolf and the lamb are enemies. The leopard is going to hunt for the goat. The lion is going to grab the calf as its prey and tear it apart as food. But in the coming messianic kingdom, all hostilities are ended. Enemies are reconciled. As one commentator points out, so secure is this peace that a youngster can exercise the dominion originally given to humankind. Verse 6. It's like going back to, the, to Genesis and the, and the Garden of Eden and, and the original instruction to Adam to rule over the animals. So secure is this peace that a child can do that. A child can lead lion and leopard and wolf. And verse 7, the nature of the wild animals has changed. The bear eats grass. The lion eats straw. Verse 8, the curse and the promise of enmity between the offspring, the woman, and the serpent is reversed. Now the infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. When I um, read that verse, I uh, am reminded of a time when I worked for a few months at a primary boarding school in the Cameron Highlands of Malaysia. Uh, It was a school that was predominantly for children of OMF missionaries uh, who were working in remote areas. The school was was great, um, and there were all sorts of, of fun activities and equipment, including boxes of skipping ropes at the edge of the playground for the children to lift out and use. And I can remember one day when I was taking a PE lesson or something, and the children were uh, sticking their hands in and pulling out the skipping ropes from the box. And I went across to pull out the last of the skipping ropes, and there at the bottom was a bright green pit viper, Uh, really quite a dangerous snake that could have done some harm to the children. But verse 8, the idea is that all danger and sources of harm will have been removed. There will be nothing to fear in the renewed creation, not even for the weakest and most vulnerable of people. I don't know whether we're supposed to take all these things here literally or not. We are, as Christians, one day going to live in a renewed world, a physical world in which there will be places to go and things to do. It's not going to be floating around on clouds for eternity. There will be a renewed creation. But what exactly it's like, I'm not very sure. Romans 8 and other passages describe a dramatic transformation of the whole of the current world. So maybe there will be a radical change in the way animals behave in the world to come. But on the other hand, the words here in verses 6 to 8 might just be a poetic way of describing the peacefulness and security of life in God's renewed creation. 
The point, though, is really verse 9. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. When the Messiah rules, when His kingdom fully and finally comes, the knowledge of the Lord will cover the whole world, filling it completely, just like water fills the whole of the sea. As another commentator puts it, there will be no place for violence or destruction. Precisely how this is to be realized must be left to the imagination, but it will certainly be utterly different from anything citizens of this fallen creation currently know. And it will be wonderful. The nature of the Messiah's coming kingdom is radically different. Finally, verses 10 to 6 in my third heading for chapter 11, the deliverance of the Lord's people. The deliverance of the Lord's people. Whether it's Assyria or the Babylonian Empire or even the bigger problem of sin and a lack of ability to live as God's people, the good news is that God has a plan for deliverance and a plan to bring his remnant people into the kingdom of his son. Verses 10 to 16. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean, all the places where the people of Israel were scattered by the king of Assyria and the Babylonians, south, north, east, even west to the islands of the Mediterranean. God is going to draw his people back from exile. He's going to bring back his remnant people, those who fully trust in the Lord, the Holy One, the mighty God, Verse 12, he, the Lord, will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish and Judah's enemies will be destroyed. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah nor Judah hostile towards Ephraim. In other words, the tribal rivalries will be a thing of the past. Together they will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people to the east. They will subdue Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. So in a sense, all the enemies of God's people are being subdued. Again, this is speaking prophetically at a number of different levels. It's suggesting a time in the future when the fortunes of Israel and Judah will be restored. And there probably were times in the years following this when that happened to a limited extent. But again, the ultimate fulfillment of this is with the coming of the kingdom of Christ in all its fullness. In that day, the people of God will no longer have division among them or external enemies to fear. Again, how exactly all that comes about and how literally we should take the references to named people's groups is questionable. In fact, if anything, verses 10 and 12 hint that the drawing of people from all nations to the Lord. Verse 12, the Messiah will raise a banner for the nations. Verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. This is the new people of God 
Jew and Gentile together, people from every tribe and nation and tongue coming to worship the Lord in the New Jerusalem. The nations rallying to Christ and His glorious kingdom. In verse 15, we're told that the Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea with a scorching wind. He will sweep His hand over the river Euphrates. He will break it into seven streams so that anyone can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of His people that is left from Assyria as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. All physical barriers are removed so that the Lord's people can come to Him. The Egyptian Sea, presumably the Red Sea, is dried up, just like at the first exodus from Egypt. The second exodus, this return of the Lord's people, will be made possible by the Lord's powerful working. The mighty river Euphrates is divided up into streams so that anyone can walk through without even getting their knees wet. Again, probably just pictorial imagery, but the idea is of barriers being removed so that God's people are no longer separated from one another nor separated from the Holy God. It's wonderful, dramatic, poetic language. And even if we don't get all the details of all the things going on here, keep hold of the bigger picture and idea. The Lord is delivering His people and bringing them into His future messianic kingdom, the renewed heaven and earth. And how better to respond then than in praise? A song of praise. Once we grasp all that God is doing, the promise of the coming Messiah and His nature and kingdom and the certainty of deliverance, aren't our hearts filled with praise? Especially this side of the first coming of Jesus, when we can see how these verses begin to be worked out. We know how these things in chapter 11 have begun to be fulfilled. We've seen the glory of God displayed in the face of Christ. And as we've worked through John's gospel and read in the pages of the New Testament, we can see the reality of Jesus the Messiah and the Holy Spirit in Him and working through Him. In His death on the cross, Christ Jesus opened up the ultimate way so that nothing can prevent us from coming to Him. All barriers removed, the barrier between us and God and the barriers between us and one another are taken away in the new people of God. And we are looking forward to His second coming when He will transform all things and take us to be with Him forever and ever in the renewed creation. We have so much to praise Him for. Isaiah actually goes on now in chapter 12 to do just that. Like when the people of Israel made it through the Red Sea and Moses and Miriam immediately uh, sang a song of praise. So too Isaiah now moves directly into praise of God. And we're going to do that as well as, as we sing a song and then celebrate communion. But But let me just read the words of Isaiah chapter 12 to you as I finish. This song of praise. In that day you will say, I will praise you, Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. 
I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day, you will say, give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done, and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. Amen. Praise the Lord.